0: Hello, and welcome to Lessons from Strangers. In honor of the launch of our magazine, and the subject of its first issue, Decolonizing Mental Health, we spoke to Dr. Keitha Reddy, Professor of Psychology at Open University in the UK. In the second part of our conversation, we touched upon the potential that lies in Decolonizing Mental Health and Psychology, the need to acknowledge our interconnectivity with everything and everyone around us, as well as the importance of contextualizing healing. If you end up feeling inspired and wish to contribute to the issue, please take a look at our website, which contains all the guidelines for how you may take part. You may find the link in the description. We look forward to hearing from you. And now, the second part of my conversation with the amazing Dr. Gita Ready.
1: So colonialism and modernity has two sides of the same coin, right? So then when we think about, you know, this example that you brought up about, you know, going to Sri Lanka and, it's and, and you know, telling them what it, that their attachment style is like an insecure attachment style. And this is a secure attachment style, for example. It is having this standard, this Western standard as modern and, you know, enlightened. Um, and therefore you need to conform to the standard. Um, and so, you know, that's one of the ways that we can see how epistemic violence uh, uh, manifests itself. So this idea of European-American uh, uh, theories and psychological models then then get applied to global-majority communities, right? Because, you know, Euro-American is a global minority. And so they had exported then to global-majority uh, global majority, uh communities and um, that becomes this standard. So that's one way of epistemic violence and there's a paper uh, by Bhatia and Priya which came out in the same uh, special issue that general psychology otherwise came in which uh, gives an example in India how this manifests itself. Then another form of epistemic uh, uh, violence in, in psychology is sort of whitewashing the, the structural roots of racism. So racism is uh, is not seen to have um, originated from this sort of Euro-American colonial enterprise. And uh, Professor Fia Salter uh, writes about uh, this in a 2018 paper. Um, And then um, also in that special issue, my um, colleague Nick Malherb, together with the Reeds Reddy Colonial Editorial Collective, Um, talked about how racism is constructed portrayed as an individual bias so it's a bias that you know individuals have and that's what racism is when actually it isn't right as fear's uh, work shows it's a structural issue Um, but in psychology you know one of the ways one of the ways epistemic violence manifests itself is this that racism is an individual problem and so then we have things like if you can just increase the contact between you know um, groups which are different, uh, we can actually get along better. Um, and another way is looking at you know uh, sort of individualist self uh, ways um, as uh, and, and and striving for you know individual self expression, individual freedom, um, those sort of things. As um, as being promoted in psychology, that's another way of uh, uh, another form of epistemic violence. Instead of thinking about solidarities and communities and how we are all connected to one another and that our liberations um, are tied in to one another because our oppressions are tied into to one another. So these are some ways that epistemic violence can manifest itself in in psychology.
0: Uh, great, thank you so much for that. Now, I would love to continue with this part of the conversation, but given our uh, limited time, let me move on to the next uh, question. So, now that we have pointed out some of the many ways that coloniality manifests itself in contemporary psychology, uh, let me ask you uh, what potentialities do decolonial psychologies hold in terms of our understanding of uh, whether it's the self, whether it's reality as a whole, um, or psychology as a field?
1: Yeah, so, you know, this point um, that I previously brought up about individualist life ways, right? So this sort of like individual choice and freedom from constraint and sort of ab- abstraction from context, as um, Glenn Adams talks about, um, that is uh, where coloniality thrives in in. Psychology, and so a decolonial psychology or, or a decolonial way of understanding the self—you know, understanding our realities—would be to then foster uh, solidarities and to think about where solidarities can exist um, and how we are interconnected. And this this requires a sort of a radical uh, shift. In thinking about you know psychology as that of like individual mind behavior and actions and how groups of individuals come together and therefore create uh, reality, but rather they, that we are in connection with one another right from the very start, um, and not only from like a anthropocentric perspective, you know, Kaupapa Maori psychology. Um, by several leading scholars in New Zealand, Darren Hodgetts, you know, Mohirua, Shailo Root. Um, they have written extensively about uh, Kaapapa psychology and, and that inherently builds this idea of being custodians of, of the land, you know stewardship of the land. So this connection of how humans are merely taking care of the land for the next generation um, rather than extracting from the land. And so these different ways of of thinking um, need to be much more readily understood or accepted as not just like niche ways of understanding. So this is not just like, this is not just, uh, you know, a niche aspect of psychology that we we will think about to look at, oh, this is something different. But where have we, in mainstream hegemonic psychology actively erased these ways of being that we have created this sort of sanitized you know restrained constrained uh, psyche um, which is a shame because we're not thinking about the complexity that we exist so the, the potential for a decolonized psychology to understand this like Pluriversality, the multiplicity um, of, of lives, of different worlds, of, of people, of the and the complexity of psyche, rather than wanting to kind of box and say, like, okay, this concept can can you know very nicely, neatly lies in you know, this variable, for example. Um, that's something that we, you know, decolonial psychology or decolonizing psychology invites you to stretch out of this, these things and to think about what else can exist. And I know that, you know, we have spent careers and generations trying to uh, compartmentalize and compress psychology into these sort of variables. And they, uh, you know, are interesting to, to think about. Um, and they definitely have helped us in some ways to to tease out uh, some of these complexities, but it's also this, you know, I, I, I don't use this word lightly, about sanitizing that, you know, there's this thing that we really, really want to put things into neat boxes in hegemonic psychology. Uh, we want to put things into neat categories and we want to know everything, you know, and decolonizing psychology invites you to like, you know, these, these this is muddied and this is complex and that is fine, you know, this is life. And that doesn't, make it any less of a a science, um, any less of a understanding or or an art or a way of being. And um, it requires a a completely different way of thinking and and paradigm. And I think if we, when we reach this, to speak this into existence, when we reach this um, understanding of the realities, I think we also can unlimit our potentials. We're not as constrained. Um, You are bigger than the box that you have put yourself into, that science has put yourself in, put you into.
0: Mm.
1: Yeah. I can go on.
0: (laughs) (laughs) No, I love, I love, I love how you phrased all of that. And um, one of the things that that brought up for me was also simply how we think about those boxes how we think about thinking and say cognition as in one way or another inherently removed from emotion uh where whereas to me and to for instance i know buddhist psychology that is complete that you cannot you cannot you cannot remove one for the other it is it is
1: absolutely not
0: and to kind of extend that point I know that what I really love about because um, I also read uh, many uh, Buddhist uh, both scholars and thinkers and and texts and how this conception of self and uh, reality is so much more grander than how we conceptualize within contemporary psychology and also yeah. to link it back to what you mentioned in terms of uh, certain decolonial psychology and certain um, bodies of knowledge how they I have constructed this subject-environment relationship and how we're not in... So how, in my understanding, contemporary psychology, weird psychology, makes this point of removing the individual from its uh, context, from its environment and how that is very, very foreign to endless number of, of bodies of knowledge and how this... And how what I'm trying to also come across here is that I feel there's a very big... I know this is very obvious too, but I think it's very worth pointing out to perhaps someone that is new to uh, these conversations is how when we talk about decolonial psychology, when we talk about bringing uh, so much wisdom and knowledge that is already out there, that has already been written, that has already been said, enacted, is that this is not to be more inclusive. This This is not only to be more inclusive and to open space for other people to coexist, but this is something that every single person individual can profit from this is someone that this is knowledge that you're simply denying yourself
1: yeah 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 interesting um words that we are using when we think about prof- profiting yeah, yeah
0: i know i at the moment i said it yeah, yeah. <laughs> no no
1: it's fine this is, this is in our psyche you know it's not to, not to i'm not pointing out to say that this is wrong or this is right you know it's it's, it's in our psyche it's, it's this context that we are in and actually illustrates the point that you're making very well i mean I think even more than you give yourself credit for that, you know this this abstraction from from context that is plagued in psychology. And I think you know several sort of European uh, social psychologists have you know made this point um, at, at a quite a, a preliminary level. So this idea of like minds not being uh, black boxes, you know, so you can't actually like abstract the mind. Um, and, and put it into a, a laboratory and then decide that, you know, this is how I'm going to understand the mind. You know, I'm going to, you know, uh, the con- I'm going to reduce all the external stimuli and I'm going to then uh, force people into this sort of, you know, box and then I'm going to test certain things. And so uh, it, tells, it tells you a lot about uh, how we think the human mind works if that's how you decide to capture, uh, you know, compassion or capture uh racism you know for example um, by you know showing different faces and then saying like oh you know I had a preference for this face over this other face and therefore I'm actually racist um you know rather than understanding that racism is a structure that um, exists and it's it manifests itself in different ways in different contexts um and so where was I going with this um, you know thinking about um, yeah, sort of inclusion. Uh, you know, yes, we want to understand that there the are different ways of being. Oh, yes, now I, now I know what, where <laughs> <what's being laughs> this, this idea of you know mind and and body being uh, coming together, embodied mind and minded body. You know, uh, Professor Sandra Jochelovich from the LSC has written extensively about this. You know, coming from this line. Uh, of thinking um, uh, from from Moscovici, uh, this idea of minds are not black boxes, you know, so you can't abstract it. And so this idea of mind and body being separate and mind-body behaviour as being, you know, kind of different things. Um, Critical social psychologists have been talking about this. But this idea that we are living in a specific, you know, simulation or combination (laughs) of different things you know in buddhist philosophy you would talk about you know how we are living in maya right sort of in in an illusion and so we make what we make of this illusion um, then uh, influences our thoughts and actions and and behaviors and the way that we uh, decide to move through this this life Um, so yeah the mind and the body are not separate and when we try to kind of put that in, in this way, in a in, in a separate way, we end up finding sort of individualized solutions to some of these uh, issues. And so, you know, when we think about mental health issues as well, we think, OK, so, you know, now I'm going to go for uh, therapy therapy. Uh, with a therapist individually, and I'm going to then solve my problems by going for therapy. Or I'm going to take, you know, several medications, and then I'm going to be able to cure myself of X, Y, and Z. I'm not minimizing the importance of these two uh, solutions. They are extremely important, and they have so much value in helping us feel in control, to um Feel that we can actually move in our bodies in a certain way. That that um, I'm not taking away from from that. That those things are very very important. Um, I mean, I myself have benefited from talk therapy for a long time, but to then sort of individualize solutions um, takes away from these structural issues. So you know, it to say. To, to to deny that all of us are depressed uh, through this pandemic is unfair. You know, this pandemic, which where we are isolated from one another, where we don't, you know, communicate uh, and and touch each other in the same way that we used to, is a deeply isolating and depressing experience. Um, but because we want to be like in this sort of, uh, you know, the economy is tanking. We have to pick up the economy, and therefore we are going to push ahead. And this is all fine. And long COVID is not a thing. And you know this this feeling of weight that you are experiencing every morning, trying to wake up to get to work or to do a thing, that's not a thing. We, you know, you're just lazy, or you know, you're experiencing some sort of um, tiredness, or, or so on. It's, it continues to make it an individualized problem, when actually we are. Human beings who need to live in connection with one another, and we also need to heal together. You know, all of these things get abstracted because we are living in this neoliberal capitalist mm. simulation. <laughs> um, and so, then the solutions or the way that healing, rather than seeing it as a solution, because then there's only, like, you know, one problem and then it's a solution, yeah. but like healing that we can endeavor to, to, or the healing journey that we can start upon is really realizing that we are connected and psychology can or decolonizing psychology can help us to start rethinking these ways and many communities work together knowing that you know our oppressions and our liberation is connected um, but we are often told to forget this mm. and deny these these ways of being um so yeah i'll leave it at that
0: <laughs> um i really really appreciate you saying that and i've had so many different points come into my mind as well <laughs> uh which means that i'll have to um show some restraint in talking about all of them um but yes so okay let me let me lead with this uh, because perhaps this is also something that i already brought up one of the many ways that this resonated with me was also other ways of healing, uh, which, for instance, I think a good example of appropriating non-Western ways of being into a Western context is meditation. So, for mm-hmm. instance, I think that the way most people in in the West know meditation today is as this very, again, uh, taken out of context um, phenomenon, where I think a good, good, good. Um, How should I say this? A visualization of that would be a Wall Street banker waking up in the morning and five minutes before basically going to ruin the world meditates, right? To get his mind clear. Um,
1: Mindfulness.
0: Yes. (laughs) And whereas if we take it back to its roots, which is, and I'm talking this from my own limited understanding, but if we take it to its roots and talk about it in regards to uh, mind-body duality, which you also brought up and how again, this is a construct. What I really love um, from the text that I read and from my own experience, which I think is very important to emphasize here, this is not a plainly me reading about something, but it's also experiential a uh, uh, way of learning is that inherently when you meditate, uh, uh, I'm talking this from Buddhist meditation, I'm not familiar with others, is after a while you reach this stage, which is called the cessation of self, what we know as self. You transcend what you yeah. what you think you are. And the beautiful aspect that happens there that inherently flows from that state of being is compassion, is love. And the way I would perhaps try to put it into words is that once you transcend yourself and you have this feeling of being one, no matter how abstract this might sound, but one with everyone yeah. around you and everything, uh, it is Closely impossible if not impossible to not be compassionate because if i am one and the same how can yeah. you be less how can another person be more and so i th- what i really love that stems from there is a completely different conceptualization of how we can not only approach mental health again as a, this out of mm-hmm. context uh mm-hmm. construct but really way of being way of building communities societies and how as you uh, also said how we are all incredibly interlinked and how connection really is at the very core yeah. of our being yeah um i don't really yeah so that was that was i just wanted to express something and how this resonated with me
1: this is really a lovely way to kind of uh wrap our conversation because this idea of cessation of self um it's not that the self doesn't exist anymore right in this sort of understanding of um the, the introspective journey, the journey into yourself it's not that the self ceases to exist in the sense that you no longer exist but the cessation of self means that you have merged with the other right, it's sort of like transcending this boundary of not knowing where you end and where someone begins this you know hopefully liminal space is what we're trying to, to get to uh, in sort of Buddhist philosophy, uh, whether it's Mahayana or, or Zen or Theravada um, and you know several other meditative philosophies or, or religious philosophies. Uh, and if we can sort of embody that every day so we don't have to kind of go into this Withdrawn, you know, to have this like, in in yogic philosophy, this idea of pratyahara, right? So the sense withdrawal. You don't have to go into a sense withdrawal to just feel connected to one another, uh, or to feel connected to, you know, a bigger power. If you were to see of it as like you know source or energy or you know God or you know however people conceptualize, or if you don't concept if or if you don't think of there being someone. Else or something else out there, but knowing that there is you and the other person who's meditating in the room together with you, for example, right? That there's this space where you don't know where you end and where the other person begins. This sort of deep compassion, the feeling, the liberation that you have at that moment when you feel, oh my God, yeah, this is amazing. This feels exhilarating, right? And how do we then embody that in this everyday state when we are not in this meditative state? So we're not going inwards into ourselves, but we are going outward into the world. And how do we then continue to do that? I think, like many indigenous psychologies and ways of being, have been teaching us these things, right? So I know I showed the example of Kaupapa Maori psychology, but there are several. First Nations and uh, Native American ways of being that also don't divorce the self and the other, right? And then when they think that, you know, some sort of imbalance takes place, it's because there's something else that is going on because you already feel intimately connected to one another. And so then the way that you then heal from that is different. It's a different modality different way of being um, and you know when I talk about how our liberations are tied our oppressions and our liberations are tied we can also see this in the way that you know um, decolonization movements or decolonial scholars have like learned from each other so you talk about you know Martin Barrow uh, you know drawing uh looking at you know liberating communities in El Salvador and how he you know draws, he was inspired by Paulo Freire who's a Brazilian philosopher and both of them were inspired by uh, and, and motivated by Franz Fanon who was born in Martinique and then you know so we draw from each other, we are, we are liberated when we work together Um, And this is, you know, looking at both whether we have ancestors who were colonizers, uh, I'm sure many of us have ancestors who were colonizers, and also many of us have ancestors who were colonized. You know, rather than sort of looking at it just at this dichotomy and thinking that, you know, what are the ways that we have perpetuated these oppressions and we continue to perpetuate these uh, oppressions, and how can we then disrupt Um, the coloniality and liberate ourselves and yes it does begin with yourself in you know the sort of introspective ways and understanding you know these things but also it requires you to show up for one another and I think um, that is one of the ways that um, the movement if you call it one movement it's not like one movement right there are many movements which then go together but That's one of the things that decoloniality entails.
0: That was a very beautiful way of taking it to a closing from what we talked about. Um, Just perhaps one or two questions to wrap this up fully. (laughs) Um, uh, One is on this note, and when you said we need to show up for each other, uh, and you exemplified that in terms of how scholars have been doing and learning from each other, and Building on top of each other's work um, in what ways could you could you perhaps um, suggest that actors from outside uh, traditional scholarship can uh, contribute to this uh, whether it's perhaps institutions such as uh, mental health NGO uh, or even individuals
1: yeah I mean I think you know there are many scholars who call themselves like scholar activists so they don't just their work is not just limited to within the academic institution or the academic environment and they are working with you know NGOs and communities directly to yeah liberate one another to challenge these structures that continue to oppress us to disrupt them to eradicate them and so there's there are sort of like psychologists or, or, or academics who are working only within the realm of, of the university but they and, and the ivory towers but they're also going out of that you know and so community psychologists uh, in the US in South Africa uh, in the UK you know work with um, with uh, different organizations like these organizations. Um, to yeah, to make substantial and significant changes, um, and I think sometimes it's about finding a, a fit, right, between what the academic is trying to do and um, what the NGO wants to do for its like for its mission for its um, its goals. And it's not so easy to say, okay, so this NGO is just going to rock up to this um, academic and say, hi, you know, I would like to work together with you. Or this academic goes up to this NGO and say, hi, you know, as part of my like impact uh, development um, KPI in my university, I need to then work with you um, to do that. Um, You know, when we think about decolonizing psychology, we're also thinking about decolonizing methods and methodologies and how do we do this. And so, you know, uh, Linda Tuhiwai Smith talks about um, how research uh, is actually something that um, many indigenous communities are averse to because of the exploitative nature that has taken place. And we don't see that just in in New Zealand. We see that with the Zapatistas um, in uh, in, in what is bordered as, as Mexico. Um, And so these are like, you know, when we're thinking about how scholars and NGOs can work together, it's also about trying to disrupt these power dynamics and who holds power and how can we work together. So it's not like scholars going in and saying, oh, I know everything and I'm now going to teach you what you need to do to liberate yourself, but rather entering a relationship which is equitable And when we're thinking about, you know, how do funds get, you know, um, directed? So if academics get funds from, you know, funding bodies, how do they then funnel that to the NGOs or to the communities that are experiencing those marginalizations and those oppressions? And how do we then work together? Um, So what are the power dynamics and how are we re-inscribing, you know, certain colonial power dynamics if we were to kind of do this, uh, in this hierarchical way, and of course, there are things like there's financial power, there's also social capital. You know what are what are you bringing to these things? So rather than saying you know what can NGOs do, um, I think that NGOs are doing a lot, and also NGOs are very uh, working a lot with very little time and very little uh, funding and, and access, and so. I think trying to understand what academics are trying to do, or this is a, more a message for for academics, I guess. So, so trying to figure out what you are trying to do by you know engaging with an NGO um, is also important. But um, so I can only speak from like the perspective of academics, saying you know think about what it is that you're doing, but work together with a with an NGO, um, and think about the power relations and think about the relationship that you want to build a sustained relationship that you want to build for, for both sides, right. For, for NGOs and for, Mm -hmm. um, for academics. So rather than saying, telling NGOs, please go out there and do this thing when you're already, you know, um, tight for time and resources and and energy, that would be quite unfair. Um, So I would say more like academics, please (laughs) try to see um, and work together with, Uh, communities that are yeah
0: thank you I can yeah I can very much vouch (laughs) for that uh, (laughs) reality (laughs) Um, yes and so my my very last question was going to be how optimistic you were about uh, the future of psychology Mm. and psychologies Um, how I do remember that you already made a point um, and one of the answers that you gave me which was that you said when we reach this. So I would presume that you are (laughs) somewhat optimistic. Uh,
1: (laughs) I think we have to be willing to abandon self-constraining ideas of what psychology uh, can look like by only thinking about what it looks like right now. you know, like I was tr- trained in hegemonic psychology, hegemonic white stream psychology. My qualifications come from here, and um, many are more invested in maintaining this vision of psychology for perpetuity. But I think allowing ourselves to be unlimited by these very narrow ideas of what psychology can look like or should look like um, is is an important uh, step. It's a a paradigm shift and it's not something um, to be taken lightly because we are invested in upholding many aspects of how psychology looks like today for our own gain, for the gain of our, for people who look like us or who, uh, who our goals align with um and so rather than sort of how optimistic am i about the future of you know psychologies i'm i'm always uh optimistic i think this there's much to be said about uh being hopeful and having hope um because that is what sustains um Many of us who are experiencing uh, intersecting uh, oppressions, um, Dr. D. N. Bell from Nottingham Trent University has got a really lovely um, talk about, you know, um, about have about having hope. Um, she ends off in that way. I, I will try to send it to you. <laughs> Maybe you can link that.
0: Please do um, <laughs>
1: find it. Um, and that's what sustains. Um, so having hope uh, about being liberated is very, very important. So I don't have the specific optimism around, you know, keeping psychology intact in a particular shape and form that it is right now. I, I'm not vested. I have no vested interest. Well, in that, I maybe, maybe I can rephrase that in a way that. Obviously, I'm working in an academic institution, and there are ways that you know we want, um, we have to teach, we have to learn, we have to work within these confines of institutions. But there are always people who are working within these institutions who are trying to trouble things, who are trying to tease things apart, disrupt things, disentangle things, and and um, cast light on a future that can be actually much brighter for all of us. Um, So, you know, coming back to this point about all of us being in muddy waters, you know, we are all in this um, mixed together. I think I am hopeful for liberation and hopeful for liberations within psychology as it currently stands. Um, But part of that means having to let go this idea of what is currently psychology that this would, you know, stay or has to stay in this form um, for the next 50, 100 years.
0: Yeah, thank you so much for that. Yeah, I was very I was very touched by that. So I really appreciated you saying and phrasing it so eloquently. Uh, I think that's, that's what our time <laughs> yeah. is. Uh, I know we could both go on for hours, but we do have to call it a day at some point. Um, so, yeah, thank you so much, Dr. Reddy, for coming and for uh, talking to us about such important uh, topics. I will make sure to put in the description all of the articles that we uh, referenced and mentioned and talks so that whomever is listening or watching can also uh, take that as the first step to greater learning. Um, yeah. Thank you so much, Dan. was really love chatting with you.